It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Amelia about myotonia congenita. According to the Genetic and Rare Diseases Information Center, myotonia congenita is a genetic disease characterized by the inability of the skeletal muscles to quickly relax after voluntary movements. Symptoms typically begin in childhood and vary from person to person. They may include muscle stiffness, muscle weakness, and attacks of weakness brought on by movement after rest. Growing up, Amelia had no idea that she had inherited this disease. But there were signs from early childhood. She hated climbing stairs, cold weather, sitting on the floor, simple things that were much more painful or uncomfortable for her than they were for other children her age. Amelia was told by doctors for years that there was nothing wrong with her. But eventually she would finally find a doctor willing to listen to her who recommended genetic testing and myotonia congenita was discovered. And now that she has an answer, she's feeling a lot of anger, disappointment, and sadness for the way she was treated and for the lost time. In our conversation today, Amelia will tell us what this disease feels like, what it was like to grow up with an unknown genetic condition, how serving in the military pushed her to start searching for a diagnosis, and the toll years of medical gaslighting took on her mental health. It's a great conversation. I'm always so excited to learn about new diseases that we've never covered on the show before. I'm always seeking out guests who have rare diseases like this that I know nothing about, and I'm thrilled to share this with you today. I have a special thank you to share this week. I got a $7.50 donation through PayPal from Wendy Brown. This one did not have a note attached to it, and I did not get any contact info through PayPal to reach out personally and say thank you. So I just thought I'd say thank you here on the podcast, Wendy Brown. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Sending a donation through PayPal is a great way to show your appreciation of the podcast. You can use our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com to do so. And if you do send in a donation, I love hearing from you. If you want to share a note, I will share that with our podcast listeners. This was a really big week for the podcast, another big week for the podcast. We got over 600 downloads just this week, which is definitely on the high side for this show, which was thrilling for me. I'm so excited that this show is reaching people and people seem to be enjoying it and coming back for more. Um, what was particularly exciting about this week is that there were downloads across the entire catalog of the podcast. Um, every single episode got at least one download, but a whole bunch of them got, you know, five or 10 downloads this week across the entire catalog. And that's really unusual. So I hope that that means that I'm doing something right, trying to get the show out in the world. I actually went to a monetization in podcasting webinar last week where a bunch of content creators got together and, you know, kind of laid it all out about how do you monetize a podcast. And I learned a ton, lots of things that I've never considered and haven't tried. A big one is that I learned that I have been doing search engine optimization wrong for the last forever, forever since I've started uh, content creating. I always thought that I was doing everything I could to show up in Google search results and search ranking and all that stuff, but it turns out that there's a lot that I didn't know. I found a couple of tools that I have been experimenting with to help drive traffic towards uh, Major Pain Podcast website when people put in related search terms on all sorts of search engines. And the whole point of this is to try to connect people living through a rare disease who've never heard from anyone else living with what they live through, trying to connect them to one other person's story through the podcast. So having search tools in place to make that actually work is massively important. And learning that there are tools to help with that that I had no idea existed is very exciting. And I'm hoping that maybe these changes I'm making to the website are part of why this was such a big week download-wise for the show. Sort of living in this interesting space right now where I'm feeling so much better. My health has improved tremendously since going on the mast cell activation syndrome protocol, but I'm not yet back to work. I'm kind of pushing myself and testing myself and seeing if I can build up the resilience to commit to a schedule of any kind. And I'm doing great. I am, you know, I'm definitely still pushing too hard sometimes. I'm still learning my limits, but I've had a good string of days this week in particular where I've been able to be really functional and productive. And since I'm testing and pushing myself, I am putting all of that effort into this podcast. And 
all of it into trying to grow the podcast because my big fear right now is that I'll get to the point where I can go back to work and it will take me away from the podcast. And I don't want that. I want to figure out how to effectively monetize this podcast, how to make it grow, how to build support and community around it so that I can just do this as my career. And I'm learning very quickly that I can make a full-time job out of this as far as putting in at least, you know, a full-time job's worth of hours into the podcast per week. I have created a lot more work for myself, sharing the show both on YouTube and all this search engine stuff. So, um, and it, it seems to be working, which is really exciting. You know, we seem to be reaching new people. So now is a really great time to throw your support behind this podcast when I'm trying to pick up some momentum, pick up some steam and try to reach uh, a wider audience and make this my career so I can just keep on making this show indefinitely. I'll remind you real quick of the ways that we currently have to support this show. First of all, if you want to support the creation of this show directly with monthly financial contributions, the best way to do so is through Patreon, patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. You can sign up as a $2 per month supporter, a $7 per month patron, or a $25 per month producer. Each tier comes with different levels of recognition and gifts. And all tiers come with monthly bonus episodes with myself and my partner, Andy, that are so much fun. Our $7 per month patrons will get a gift of a Major Pain coaster, and our $25 per month producers will get a coaster and a Major Pain tote bag. These gifts were created by my mom. They are beautiful, and we are running through the stock of our original logo that says Living with Chronic Illness at the bottom, and then we're going to switch over to have it say a podcast about chronic illness and disability. As I mentioned a couple episodes back, I've just updated the podcast artwork for season three of the show. So once the original artwork is gone, once those original coasters and tote bags are sent out to our Patreon community, they will become collector's items. You'll never again be able to get the original logo in a coaster tote bag. So it's a real great time to sign up on Patreon if you'd like to have your gift be an official collector's item. (laughs) One of my stretch goals for the Patreon is to not just earn enough to support myself creating this podcast, but I really want to start giving back to the chronic illness and disability community. So I've decided to make that official. This podcast is currently earning $200 per month on Patreon. Once we get to $500 per month on Patreon, I will start holding 5% of each month's earnings to put into a fund towards paying for genetic testing for an individual in need. I feel like this is a good way to give back to the community because I know from experience that getting genetic testing is often not covered by insurance and can be a real stumbling block for people who go undiagnosed for long periods of time. I know that 5% of $500 is nowhere near what it will take for genetic testing. And if we're collecting that amount per month, it will take a long, long, long time to just pay for even one person's genetic testing. But it's a start and it's a goal to reach for. And to expand on that goal, if we ever get up to $1,000 per month through Patreon, I will raise what I'm withholding to 10% towards genetic testing. If this podcast ever takes off in a real serious way and we're, you know, seeing a lot of income coming in, not just through Patreon, but from hopefully other revenue streams, you know, I I really need to figure out my sponsorship situation. I haven't really delved into that yet. I feel like we're just starting to hit the numbers where we might be attractive to sponsors who might want to pay to run ads on the show. And I know, hey, it's great listening to a podcast that is ad-free, but this podcast has to pay for itself in order for it to continue indefinitely, which is what I want. But let's say, you know, wildest dreams. Let's say we're making, you know, $5,000 a month from producing this podcast. We can start giving away genetic testing like once a month. How incredible would that be? Um, These are my dreams, people. These are my my far-fetched dreams. But I think that they're possible. I know that they're far-fetched, but they are possible. And the only way to reach a dream like this is one step at a time. Every single person that signs up on Patreon is getting us one step closer towards these fantastic dreams that I have. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers that I thank every week at the beginning of each and every show because they are going such a long way towards keeping this show going financially. So, extra special thank you to Chris Fowler, Steve Cavanaugh, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Your support is epic and so appreciated. Many people who listen to this show have a chronic illness or disability that prevents them from working. I totally know how that goes. (laughs) So if you're looking for ways to support this show that do not cost anything, there are some fantastic ways to do so. You can support us on our social media platforms, TikTok and Instagram at Major Pain Podcast, Twitter at Major Pain Pod, and our brand new platform, YouTube, youtube.com slash at Major Pain Podcast. 
And of course, just sharing the show with a friend is a huge way to help us get the word out about this podcast. You can also sign up to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice. If you have a diagnosis of any kind and you're interested in being paid to participate in research studies and surveys, check out our affiliate link for Rare Patient Voice, which is rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. Once you sign up on their platform, they will contact you if they have a survey or study for you to participate in, and participants generally earn $120 per hour. And if you sign up using our link, you'll be sending a $10 donation directly to the podcast. I feel a palpable shift in how this podcast is going recently. I feel momentum that is really exciting me. And I think it is sort of mirroring my momentum as a human being as my health has improved with my potential diagnosis. And I want to ride this train all as far as it'll go, all the way. <laughs> I love doing this so much. This is the first content I've ever made in a long history of content creation where it feels just super sustainable to me. And endlessly interesting and endlessly rewarding where the work is really hard you know putting these shows together the editing writing up the descriptions posting up on all our different platforms it's so much work and it's very hard but i am so driven to do it because i love it i love what this is all about i particularly love every single conversation that i have that is my favorite part is talking to our guests And my dream as a content creator has always been to create a career for myself, doing something that I have built, that I love, that I can just keep on making. And this feels like it could be it. This is what I want it to be. So let's go for it, you know, together. We can only do this together. I need your support to make these dreams happen. The only way the podcast will ever grow is because of listeners who are helping to support it. So for all of you listening who've been supporting the show, I am overwhelmed by your support. I appreciate it so much. Considering the size of our audience over the first two years, the amount of support that I've been receiving is really extraordinary. I think that our listeners believe in this as much as I do. And that's so exciting. So um, I'm, I'm just feeling a little giddy just with, with the progress that we've been making recently together. And I just have to thank you for that. Thank you for continuing to engage with this show and listen. It means the world to me. And we have another great episode to share with you today. Last thing I'll say, as always, do not forget that my guests and I are not medical professionals. This podcast is not intended as medical advice. We're just here to share individuals' stories and try to spark some ideas on your medical journey. So please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. With that, we'll jump into our fantastic conversation with Amelia about myotonia congenita. Amelia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat today. We have another new disease, which I always get so excited to learn about. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit. So why don't you tell us about yourself? My name is Amelia Green. I am a media producer and editor. I am currently renovating my little bungalow here. And I love tennis. Very cool. And you mentioned being a media producer and editor. Tell me about that. What type of work do you do? Well, I've been doing a lot of nonprofit work in sound specifically. I worked at a playhouse for a while where I would edit their music. I would choose lobby music and I would edit the curtain speeches where that would play over the loudspeakers. And that was really fun. I've also done a lot of other audio work where I was editing interviews. I've done a little bit of mini podcasts. And then I also have done a gallery tour, an audio gallery tour, which is so much fun. I was able to interview artists and put their description of their artwork on the actual art, on a tag. And then people with headphones and their phone on the website could actually listen to the sound of the artist talking about the art that they're right standing in front of. Yeah, that's fun. I've I've seen those before in a museum. (laughs) Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Awesome. But most recently... I made a film, my first fiction film called Coming Clean, and I did that through the Easter Seals Disability Film Challenge for 2023. Whoa. Yeah, it was pretty difficult. It was uh, basically making a film in five days, and (laughs) all of my crew and cast came from TikTok. Wow, fascinating. And so a, a disability film festival, it sounds like. I'm familiar with the 24 hour film festival up here in Seattle. I compose music for one of those ones. But this sounds like something similar, but for stories about disability? Well, the story doesn't actually have to be about disability, Mm. but they want disabled creators to make the films. 
And is it available for people to watch? Yeah. Um, so the name of the film is Coming Clean, and you can view it on YouTube. If you search for Easter Seals Coming Clean, it'll come right up. And what was the story? Coming Clean is about an autistic woman in her late 30s that's attempting to balance the responsibilities of middle adulthood with her career goals while contemplating whether to come clean about her romantic feelings towards a friend on the other side of the world. Ooh, fun. A little bit of romance. <laughs> yeah, the theme, the genre this year for the Easter Seals Disability Film Challenge was romance. And so once I heard that, I was like, oh, yeah, I could do this. But I wasn't entirely convinced until I actually handed it in that I could mm. do it and finish it. Yeah. I didn't register until the last day because I was really holding out because I was thinking something's going to change my mind. And something is going to cause me to not want to do it. And what ended up happening uh, is that I ended up being more uncomfortable with the idea of not telling the story than I did with telling it. And once I crossed that threshold, there was no returning. There was no going back. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so cool. I love filmmaking. I do some YouTube stuff. I green screen myself into old Star Trek episodes because I'm a big nerd. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Well, let's yeah. get into your let's get into your health journey. I know that it's extensive and there's a lot of things that have happened, but there's one diagnosis in particular that we're going to talk about today. Um, so, Amelia, what is your major pain? Myotonia congenita. Myotonia congenita. So, this is something I've never heard of before. What is myotonia congenita? Myotonia congenita is an inherited neuromuscular disorder characterized by the inability of muscles to quickly relax after voluntary contraction. Okay. So like you, you contract a muscle, let's say you make a fist and then is it that your fist can't unclench right away? No, it's just that the, the muscles get tight really fast and they get tired very fast. And so it's really hard to describe, but it's not a joint issue where you would think that like with arthritis, you have a hard time opening and closing your hand. Mm -hmm. It's a skeletal muscle disease where the signals to the muscle don't necessarily work. And then they also get tired faster. Yeah. So basically the condition is present from early childhood, but symptoms can sometimes not really show up. Or if you're growing up with something like this, you might not realize that this is not normal which is what happened to me. Hmm. You know, I was told I was a hypochondriac my whole life and turns out, no, I actually wasn't. I have genetic muscle disease. So when you look it up, you'll see a lot of copy and pasted information where somebody wrote a blog and then other articles are written. And it's basically the same information, which is very vague and didn't really help. And probably why I wasn't able to find this on Google when I was trying to research my pain. Myotonia congenita never came up in any of my Google searches of my symptoms. You know, I think a lot of people in our community tend to try to do their own research and figure out what is causing this pain. Hmm. And, you know, sometimes Google is not enough, unfortunately. Oftentimes, yeah. I think we lean too heavily on Google as a, as a community to try to give us answers. And then we oftentimes end up having more answers than we needed, but not the right answers. And that can really add on to the anxiety of not knowing what's going on in your own body. And that is a symptom or a result of living in the society that we live in now, where doctors have too many patients restricted by insurance. You know, the appointment times are typically very short, not enough time to really get into chronic illness properly most of the time. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we are turning to Google in the first place, because a lot of us you know, I mean, I, for myself personally, I went through huge, um, my, most of my life having no idea what was going on in my own body as far as my mystery illness was concerned. I hope that I know now, but we still haven't confirmed that. But yeah, I'm so used to going to doctors and asking for help and being told that nothing's wrong, being told that my, you know, test results were normal. So, when I can't get help there, then I turn to the internet and start scouring things. And um, I, I went through that process for so long that I got to the point, it's like, I can't research anymore. I'm not going to figure this out through Google. Like I need professional help. Um, and that that's such a, it's a horrible catch 22 that a lot of chronic illness people find ourselves in. Um, so, it sounds like you, you had that experience as well. I feel the same exact way that you just 
said. Yeah. Yeah. It got to a point where just trying to figure out what was wrong was a full-time job. It felt like, you know, tell me more about the symptoms. How did this manifest for you? Uh, what were, what were you experiencing that you felt like this isn't normal? Something is wrong with my body and I don't know what it is. Well, I think from childhood, you know, back, I can remember as early as four or five years old, I hated stairs. I hated climbing stairs or going downstairs. I hated cold weather. Um, I hated sitting on the floor, like in kindergarten where they say, okay, sit on the rug and we'll read, you know, read story time, whatever. Um, In choir in elementary school, um, it was very painful for me to stand still on the wooden steps. And... And I was always told, this is one of the key things that now looking back makes sense. Another thing is that I was always told I was so strong when I was a little girl hmm. and I never did anything different than any other kid. Why, why is everyone telling me I'm so strong? That's such a weird thing to say um, because I wasn't particularly athletic is what I mean. So it was like, apparently I had this muscle definition, I guess. And so people tended to say that to me. Wow, interesting. And you've sent me some notes, which are super helpful. And I see in your notes that sometimes the disease can cause muscle enlargement. So, is that what you're talking about? You know, when you were very young, they noticed that you had enlarged muscles, more muscle definition than they'd expect? Yeah, and I was always, I would consider a fit kid or, you know, thin or whatever. I never was overweight until I was over 18. And I you know, ended up having an unrelated binge eating disorder. But basically, yeah, growing up, I wasn't particularly athletic, although I wasn't a a young equestrian. So, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around what it must feel like to have this disease. So, your muscles are contracting. Uh, Whenever you contract a muscle, they don't relax right away. So, it's not necessarily that you're stuck in a position. It's you you can move, but your muscles are um, are not relaxing normally. So, you're kind of like working your muscles way more than a normal person would for any normal situation. And that can cause yeah. um, muscle fatigue, muscle enlargement, uh, and just kind of wear down your body. It's like, you know, it's, if I was like trying to hold a fist all day long or clench my muscles all day long just from sitting here, but your body's kind of doing that without your Without your permission, I guess you could say. I don't even notice. Yeah, and I don't even notice it. So, the way that the internet words it, it sometimes makes it sound like I look like a bodybuilder or something. I don't, that's not how it is. It's more just, I mean, it can be for may- maybe some people or maybe for males, but for me, it's just more like just definition without really trying. And, um, and basically I don't feel it contracting. So even though technically it is on a very small level, I don't really notice it until let's say I've been sitting too long and then I go to get up and I'm, hobbling around because Mm. my muscles are so tight and contracted wow and that can also cause a muscle imbalance because if you're sitting down you're going to be stretching out your muscles in a certain position which can also make your pelvis and your back misaligned a lot of people don't like chiropractors because they haven't found a good one i think um for me personally i went through probably seven before i found a good one Mm -hmm. over the course of multiple years and that's when i started realizing that there's something else going on she's now retired but this one particular doctor helped me a lot in the last couple years i think i started going her in 2020 and that's what really made me want to figure out more because I was able to get my mental health for the most part under control, which was a separate issue with the PTSD. And once I had mental stability in the complex PTSD, then I was able to look at more of the physical stuff. And that's why I think part of it took so long because I was being gaslit for so many years by doctors telling me that it was all in my head. Yeah. And I knew in my heart that it wasn't in my head. But when you're constantly told that over and over again, you start to question your own reality. Absolutely. Yeah. I've experienced that as well. It's it's horrible. Yeah. One thing I, I always mentioned to doctors, pretty much every doctor I saw was that I have rapid overall fatigue. And the doctors tried to tell me that it was fibromyalgia. And I never accepted that answer because I just thought that was just them blowing me off, basically. Mm. 
And I think about all the people that get slapped with that label who actually have a rare condition like myotonia congenita, the doctors just throw their hands up and they just give up instead of ordering genetic testing like they should. Uh, you know, why did it take 13 years for me to get genetic testing? Because they didn't care. Because I feel like a lot of the doctors, they put their own ego ahead of the patient's health. And so they see a, a fat white woman with PTSD on her mental health record. Okay, so that's the problem. Yeah, I can totally vouch for what you're saying. Like I was misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia years and years ago and well before having any genetic testing done. And my, you know, my condition was not discovered through genetic testing. Um, we, we still suspect that I have mast cell activation syndrome, which we never would have found if I hadn't been extremely persistent. Yeah, I mean, I was told that I had fibromyalgia and just kind of sent out the door and then there was nothing else to do, you know? But there was, that was years before I had this huge array of testing done um, that no one had ever even tried before. You know, when I finally found a doctor who was willing to run all the tests, I was astonished how many tests had never been done, having been, you know, complaining about this thing off and on my entire life. There's so many issues at play, just like the medical model where we only have 15 minutes for a whole appointment and <laughs> you wait, you know, three months for an appointment that's 15 minutes long, you barely get a couple words in and then nothing happens. Um, and then you have to wait, you know, another three to six months or even a year sometimes to, to get the next step of the process going. You know, my doctors found evidence that I might have small fiber neuropathy a really long time ago. And it's by the time I actually get the testing done for it, I think it will have been a full year uh, between mm -hmm. finding evidence of it and actually getting tested for it because the process is just miserably slow. Uh, and if we don't keep pushing and keep fighting, we just won't make progress. Yeah. And um, did you get the skin, the skin sample? That's what we're going to do. I, I have it scheduled for uh, end of June. Okay. And that's good. Yeah. Um, I was going to do that, but then right before I did that, I got my genetic test results. So I never pursued that because it's most likely just my myotonia congenita. Yeah. But yeah, that's how I know about that. So yeah, yeah it's a sterile environment that you'll have to get a skin sample and a skin punch, I guess they punch a hole. In yeah, it. a punch biopsy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but so myotonia congenita is a disorder that is caused by mutations in a gene responsible for shutting off electrical impulses in the muscle. So the muscle can contract and then it's unable to relax normally. And that must be painful. It sounds like almost like a muscle cramp. I mean, that's kind of what a cramp is, is when you... Uh, when a muscle contracts and then won't relax. Yeah. And so, yeah, this causes stiffness, pain, cramping. And when I, and I still think I might have uh, Ehlers, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, but because of the muscle, because of myotonia congenita, making my muscle so stiff, depending on the time of day, I feel like the test results for hypermobile EDS is not going to be accurate. That is fascinating. So you think that, I'm assuming that you have noticed some hypermobility if you are looking into Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder that we've actually had a, a lot of really incredible episodes on this podcast speaking with uh, patients about. Something that seems to be criminally underdiagnosed that is now getting more recognition and where, you know, people are discovering they have this condition. Um, so you're thinking that your hypermobility is being masked by the fact that your muscles can't contract and you get stiff. So you have one condition causing stiffness and potentially another condition causing hypermobility that's being masked by the first. So getting tested for the second is kind of proving to be almost impossible because your body is hiding it when you are having that evaluation done to see if you are hypermobile. Right. I am really flexible and I've never dislocated any of my joints. And maybe that's because of the myotonia congenita. We don't know. But I definitely feel like I at least have the hypermobile spectrum disorder because yeah. it just makes sense. The only thing is I just need to find a doctor that's an expert in ADS that is willing to do more than just the bait and scale. If I'm Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right. And then also hopefully a doctor who is familiar with myotonia congenita. But And that's the other thing that's so tough is that when you have a rare disease... 
uh, it can be really, really difficult to find a doctor who knows enough to really give you sound advice. Like once you, once you have this genetic testing that says that you have myotonia congenita, you know, that's a place where Google can actually really help. It's because you have a name, you have a specific thing to look for, uh, instead of, you know, putting in symptoms and not having the right thing be churned out, you have a thing to look at what is this actual thing. And, you know, I, you might end up going to a doctor's appointment and knowing more than your doctor because it's such a rare disease that, you know, doctors don't know everything about every rare disease. That's, yeah, that's true. And <laughs> it's going to be really hard to find. There are two forms of the disorder. Hmm. One is the Becker type. And that would be caused by mutation from the genes of both parents. And then Thompson disease, which is what I have, was caused by having a mutation in one copy of the gene, which means it came from one parent, which makes sense. Because I believe that my mother was misdiagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I do not really? think she has it. Wow. Based on what she has presented, uh, we have very similar symptoms, although she also was born with scoliosis. I was not. And so that made, obviously, the muscle pain significantly worse. And she's a, she was able to get her back fixed a couple years ago. Um, but, you know, doctors just gave her, I think, the MS diagnosis because she had some symptoms, but didn't quite fit. She has, you know, this was 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, she got this diagnosis and she hasn't declined mm. at all. Wow. So, and one of the signs of myotonia congenita is not w muscle waste. So you don't, it's not a life-threatening condition by itself. Um, of course, not finding a solution and being gaslit your whole life could contribute to shortening of life because that leads to anxiety and could possibly lead to depression and things like that. But by itself, myotonia congenita is not going to shorten your life. Of course, you know, in case, unless you fall off a ladder because of it or something, you know, which is possible. I mean, with the cramping that happens, you know, I've fallen off a few ladders in my day. Hmm. So not, wow. <laughs> yeah. So rock climbing, probably not a hobby I'm going to get into, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess theoretically possible that she could have MS and myotonia congenita, although I think it's very strange that she hasn't declined in 20 years. Yeah. I don't know enough about MS, but I can tell you that we do know that it came from one, the Thompson disease comes from one parent and it's sure. not my dad. Yeah. Well, it, and that's got to be, you know, that's a com confirmable thing because you have, have done the genetic testing to test positive for the, and can they tell from the genetic testing that you have the Thompson form? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the difference. So the Becker is going to be from two parents right? and Thompson is from one parent. Wow. And since I know that my dad doesn't have this issue, that it leaves my mom. It has to be your mom. It has to be your mom. Yeah. Wow. Science is amazing. I mean, the fact that we can determine these things at all is incredible. It's just, it, it's the getting access to it that's the the tricky part where, you know, the testing exists. It's just finding the right testing. And everything that you test for doesn't matter unless you're testing for the right thing, you know, because that's the only thing that's going to test positive um, unless you have multiple conditions. So, yeah. Yeah, and especially with genetic, that's a good that's a good point that you brought up because with genetic testing, you have to do with something called um, genetic counseling first, mm -hmm. which is where you literally go over your entire life history and your family history, if you know anything, which is hard because I don't know that much about my family medical history, but you basically have to, you have to say everything that's ever been wrong with you so that the geneticist can put all that together and th that information together and then give it to the people actually at the lab. And that's how they find it. Because if I had never mentioned muscle disease or, or uh, muscle cramping or muscle tightness, they might not have caught it. It's possible that it could have been overlooked. And so the gene uh, that is the CLCN1 is what they found. And it sounds like you went through a, uh, not was this not through a hospital? This was just, you found a genetic counselor. That's what I did. I found a genetic counselor outside of the hospital and, you know, we had to pay out of pocket. And I was very grateful to my partner, Andy, for paying for that so that I can have genetic testing done because the hospital was saying, you know, uh, that they just weren't, weren't going to cover it by insurance and doing it through the hospital was going to be $10,000, which is way more than it costs to go through a third party company. Yeah. Well, fortunately, because of my veteran status, I am able to get a lot of my health care through the VA. Hmm. And that has been 
a good thing in many ways, even though it took so long to get to this point. So I'm just thinking about the timeline of what we've talked about. So you had some, uh, you, you noticed in elementary school that, you know, sitting on the floor was really uncomfortable and a few other things that you mentioned about the early symptoms that you felt. When did you kind of come to the realization that there was something here that needed to be diagnosed? Well, prior to the military, I thought, oh, well, I'm just flexible or I'm just sensitive because I was always told I was so sensitive as a child, you know, especially somebody that's autistic. And so once it started affecting my job, because in the military, your job is to be fit for the most part and to be able to do things that a regular day-to-day person can't necessarily do. We push ourselves to limits that are beyond what I ever thought was physically possible for me. And I did really well physically, I feel like, until I started having pain that I couldn't recover from. So I remember doing a relay race early on within the first six months or so of my um, enlistment. And I remember having my thighs were so sore, I literally had to pull my pant leg up to get onto a curb because my muscles weren't contracting anymore. Like they just wouldn't work. Hmm. And I actually had bed rest for a few days because I didn't know what was wrong. I literally could barely walk. You know, after a few days, it it went away. And so even though I scored almost 100% on my physical fitness test at one point, once my joints started hurting because the muscles would misalign my skeleton because it would be pulling in directions that they're not to be pulling in then i started getting actual joint problems and joint injuries and that's something that i could kind of say was the starting point and you were looking into joint issues i'm assuming (laughs) right so i i just thought oh well i'm just out of shape that's why my muscles are hurting. That's why my muscles aren't recovering. Oh, well, I need to drink what these guys are drinking, all these muscle drinks, you know, that they drink. And I got to keep up with the guys. But it's actually, it was never my fault. It was never anything I was doing. It was not because I wasn't taking magnesium. It wasn't because I wasn't taking pre-workout raspberry flavored drink. It was because I literally have a genetic muscle disease. Yeah. Um, So even though I did well physically, uh, I never, I I wasn't able to really recover properly from exertions, like long-term exertions. And that takes a toll over time. Yeah. And that, then that's what caused a lot of my joint problems. So I have problems with a couple of my vertebrae. I have a little bit of a knee issue on both my knees. I have a torn hip labrum at least in one of my hips of course in order to test for that that requires a sterile environment of a arthros i think it's called an arthroscopy or anthroscopy um and so i only got one of my hips tested for that so i probably have tear little tears in both of my hip labrums but i definitely have confirmed it in one so anyway it it can lead so myotonia congenita can lead to a bunch of joint issues because it's pulling on your skeleton in ways that it shouldn't yeah the muscle which is sort of a, a red herring for anyone trying to diagnose you um and even for you personally thinking that you know these must be joint issues that i'm having when in fact it is your muscles pulling on the joints so how long did it take you you, you mentioned 13 years to get a diagnosis yeah so i say 13 years because it was 13 years ago that this became a problem i could no longer ignore hmm. That's because, of course, with genetic disease, it's prevalent throughout your whole life. But, and this is my geneticist actually said that a lot of people don't really start looking into it until their adulthood because of a job that might trigger it, or you know, pregnancy or something like that could also possibly trigger it because you you you're more aware of your body at certain points of your life than you are when you're four or five years old. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, a four or five year old doesn't necessarily have the words to explain what's wrong with them either. I, I say 13 years just because that's when it started really impacting my life in a really negative way where I couldn't be avoided. And is is that your your time in the military is when that started when you could no longer ignore it? Correct. Yes. Yeah. 
so you get out of the military and then you still have this puzzle to figure out. You just, do you start going into different doctors all the time and you start going through that whole process of medical evaluation over and over and meeting new people, telling your story from the beginning over and over again and trying to make progress and just not getting any foothold under you diagnostically for a long time. Right, because a lot of the joint issues were fairly mild, and so they weren't really showing up that strongly in MRIs or x-rays or CAT scans. And so even though I have a little bit of arthritis in my knee and a little bit of arthritis in my back, the doctors would say to me, well, this is not enough to cause this much pain, so it must be mental. It must be your PTSD. It must be your anxiety. And so that was basically the conclusion for a very long time because it wasn't showing up in imaging. And now we know, and I, I almost want to cry because it's like, it's so obvious now looking back that I wa- it wasn't my fault. I wasn't wrong. And I just needed someone to do genetic testing and to think a little bit more critically about the situation. And believe me, number one is to believe me, I wasn't making up this pain. Yeah, sure, if I'm in a bad mood one day, my pain might be a little bit worse. But, you know, I, I don't I don't tell doctors that because they take that and they run with it. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. It's a trap, you know? In the words of the great Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Um, <laughs> I'm a nerd. Because you're right. I mean, you live inside of a body and everything is connected to everything else inside of your body. So, if you have pain from a genetic disorder and then you also have depression and anxiety, your sensation of that pain might get worse uh, on a day where you're depressed because you feel bad in multiple ways. And I think if I'm remembering correctly from our episode where we spoke to my friend who's a pain scientist, I think there's like one pain center in the, in the brain um, and all pain signals are kind of going through one place. So, yeah. If you have emotional pain and physical pain, they they could absolutely amplify each other. But doctors always take that to mean your emotional pain is causing your physical pain, which we really got to get out of the the medical system. Like that is causing so much harm. It's causing so much harm. And I hear it constantly. I've experienced it myself that, you know, doctors blame our physical symptoms on our emotional state. And there's so much danger in that because if you are anxious and experiencing the pain from a genetic disorder and your doctors start telling you it's your fault, that there's nothing that you can do because it's just you need to get your anxiety level down. And then you try to do the things to get your anxiety down and it doesn't help with the pain. And then you feel like you're failing and then the anxiety level goes up. And that happens to all of us. So, it's this like horrible spiral that then causes all of this, you know, complex medical PTSD. And it's got to stop, you know, like this is a huge, huge problem. It's not even just the anxiety that they told me I needed to do. Oh, like literally, are you in therapy? Yes, I'm in therapy. I've been in therapy. I'm I'm autistic. I, I need it to exist because I have to navigate this world that is not meant for me. So yes, I am in therapy is the question that I always have to answer. But it's not even just that. It was, oh, are you taking vitamin D? Are you taking magnesium? Are you stretching? You know, are you drinking water? And it's just like, oh my God. And like, yeah, those kind of help a little bit. Tiny, tiny. Actually, the supplements, I actually was told by a geneticist that the magnesium and vitamin D is really not going to make a difference hmm. in my pain. So, even that. But yeah, daily stretching, daily massages. I have a whole protocol that I do for that. That helps, but it's very temporary. And if I go out and mow my lawn, there, there are times where I'll do yard work for a couple hours. I'll come home, I'll come back inside and, and want to eat food and I can't even lift a water bottle up. I can't even lift a plate or a, a fork and I have to put it on my chest and kind of just shove it in my mouth <laughs> like, like like this, like just using my wrist because my little, like my entire arm except up to my wrist isn't working. And so, you know, I have to be very careful and pace myself when I, when I'm doing things like yard work or home renovations or things like that. Um, yeah. And like for tennis, I love tennis, but I go through phases where, you know, there was, uh, I think, a five year period where I didn't play tennis because I didn't know why I was having such severe pain. I didn't know why my muscles were locking up. And 
um, and it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to actually massage them enough to get to a point where they're not tight, you know. And so I, you know, I have heel spurs, I have uh, plantar fasciitis. Those are caused for me by the myotonia congenita. Wow. What was the turning point as far as realizing you needed genetic testing and actually getting it done? It sounds like this is a long process. What what actually got you to the finish line? I think that having a doctor who listened, and no doctors are perfect, but having a doctor say, hey, maybe we should do genetic testing. And also my chiropractor that I had been seeing for a couple of years also recommended it. So that was the, logistically, that's what led this. And then the genetic testing actually took I think about a 16 months from the time that the, the order was put in to the time that I got my results. And the reason why it took so long was because the first genetics I went to, their contracting company, you're going to love this, their, their contracting company couldn't figure out how to build the VA. <laughs> so instead of trying to figure it out, they just didn't process my sample. So I had to do the whole process over again. And this time I used blood instead of spit. I was able to go through the VA for the second time. Um, and even to make it even worse, the reason why I didn't go through the VA the first time was because the order was originally put in to test for hypermobile EDS and genetic testing, which are two separate tests. One is a physical and one is a blood or spit. And so because the H... EDS was on the actual order, it was denied because Salt Lake City VA does not do HEDS exams. But nobody told me that. If I had known that, I would have said, well, then forget about the physical exam. Let's just do the, the genetic testing and I'll find someone else to do the physical exam. Because no one told me that. So then I had to go to a outside university and then they lost or they couldn't figure out how to build the VA. And so... The whole thing took 16 months. And another thing that's really important that I want to mention is that after the military, I was so focused on my mental health because of my CPTSD and suspected autism that all of my physical pain, I kind of had to put on the side a little bit. I was maintaining it through physical therapy a little bit, uh, where I would get manual massages and stretches. And then I was getting chiropractic about once a week or so, or three times a month or so. But as far as all of the medical appointments, my mental health had to take a priority. And my biggest problem out of the military was just trying to recover from the PTSD. I just heard on TikTok somebody say, I was realized autistic instead of saying diagnosed autistic, which I really like. So I'm going to start using that. So I realized I was autistic through a doctor in New York City. I went to go see a specialist in AFAB adult autism. And I finally got an official diagnosis through that. Although I have to say too that I'm sure you'll agree that um, self-diagnosis of autism is valid. So I just want to put that out there. I personally felt that I needed to get the full range of all the different tests. So it, I spent about 12 hours with her over a course of three days. It was very intense. But anyway, so once I, once I had my CPTSD under control using dialectical behavior therapy, which is amazing, and then I re was realized autistic, then I was able to start looking more into my physical symptoms. So over the last four years, I've been really focusing on getting to the root of this muscle problem. Yeah. And you finally, finally made it happen. So what's the feeling when you get that genetic testing back and there is an explanation for this thing that has been plaguing you your whole life? How did you feel in that moment? Well, first it was a huge amount of relief. And then there... I think, and this is okay, that I think there was a little bit of anger too. Yeah. Because I think to myself, because once I once I actually Googled the term myotonia congenita, then all the things that I've been saying these, to these doctors all these years came up. 
but to reverse engineer it was so much harder. And so, yeah, I, I've, I'm still trying to navigate those feelings of anger and, you know, anger is a, is a sign that you have emotions to deal with. You know, I think that it's a secondary emotion, as they say, you know, dialectical behavior therapy, we learned that anger is a secondary emotion. So what am I really feeling? Well, disappointment, heartbreak, um, and, uh, uh, sadness for lost time you know things like that yeah and that takes some time to process through yeah but it is good it is not life-threatening because i was worried that maybe i had some other kind of condition that might be um and so it will probably stay pretty level as far as the pain i don't think it's going to get worse and that was one another key thing to to tell people is that people would say, well, is it getting worse? The doctors would ask me, is it getting worse? I said, no, it's been the same for 10 plus years. And, and the reason why that's so important is because if you go back to what I was saying before with binge eating disorder, I gained a lot of weight after I got out of the military because I was so afraid to move because I didn't know what was wrong with me. And so I just stopped exercising. And I also had the PTSD, which caused me to eat. That was my drug of choice was food. And so because I had gained so much weight over the last 10 or so years, that's, that always seemed to be the go-to excuse for doctors. Say, well, if you lose weight, you'll, you'll be in less pain. I said, nope, no. And I would make a point of every single time. It is not the weight. My pain level is the same it has always been when I was in the fittest point of my life, which is in the first six months of the military. So I told these doctors, do not tell me it is weight. I'm going to, I, I wouldn't even let them tell me it. And then, and then even after explaining that, they would still say, oh, well, maybe you can just, you know, walk around the block or <laughs> they, they would not allow me to tell them. They would not even allow me to educate them. And they wouldn't believe me when I said it's not the weight. Because my pain level is the same it was 10 years ago, 13 years ago. So that's, I think that's a really important point to say that a lot of doctors will say that weight is a problem and it had nothing to do with it. Now, yeah, sure. It makes me a little winded a little bit faster, maybe, because there's physically more weight on my skeleton, but it's not the cause of my pain. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like anxiety, you know doctors looking for any reason to stop searching anything that they can put as a barrier sometimes they often choose to and i i still i, I question why that is you know i uh, it's a very frustrating thing for those of us who are searching for answers well now, now that you have an answer you've talked a little bit about some of what you do to get by um you know massages and chiropractic what is your regimen now what helps is there medication that helps what, what are the physical things that you do that help? Right. So for me, um, I was told that medications like sodium channel blockers or quinine would be beneficial. I have not taken any of those medicines specifically for this. I did try, I was put on Lamotrigine, which is a, a sodium channel blocker just because of my PMDD. Hmm. But I, I tried that twice in my life, s separated by several years, and both times it ended up making my spine and the muscles surrounding my spine very stiff. And so it actually caused um, worsening symptoms specifically in that very small area of my body. And so because it happened twice, I'm no longer having sodium channel blockers as an option. Now, quinine became... You might have heard that because of the whole COVID thing where people were taking it for COVID. Um, it's not really for that. Uh, it's actually for malaria, but because somehow they figured out that it could possibly help in a smaller dose for myotonia congenita. I don't think I'm at that point right now where I need to take a daily medication. I have found that I can genuine, generally deal with it by doing manual massages and daily stretches. I have a wall handheld massager with a long handle so I can reach my legs and my back 
Um, and then I have these Velcro electronic leg air compression wraps that I can put on and put my feet up in my sofa chair and do that. Um, but again, these are all temporary things. The pain is going to come back based on activity level, based on whether I'm sitting for too long or standing too long or just living life in general. So I have to be really on top of it. Um, I don't do it as much as I, as I'd like to, but, um, now that I know this is a fairly new diagnosis, I just found out a few months ago. So now that I know how to treat it, I can do that. Now there's something called cyclobenzaprine, which is a class of medication that is specifically for skeletal muscle, for skeletal muscles. And the reason why I by accident found this helpful was because myotonia congenita is specifically related to muscles that are skeletal muscles. The only problem with something like cyclobenzaprine is that it is very um, habit forming or addictive. And so you have to be very careful with it. It can get out of control really fast. So if you have any history of compulsion issues or addiction issues, I would be really careful with something like Flexerol or Cyclobenzaprine, which is the generic name. Um, but it has, I, I take it very rarely and I'm very careful with it. Um, and you can even, you know, talk to your doctor about obviously what's appropriate for you. For me, um, because it blocks the nerve impulses that are sent to my brain, um, it can take away the pain, but it also is something that is really is something you have to be careful with as far as the frequency goes. So one thing about with the muscle stiffness is that it may interfere with walking, grasping on things, not the joints, but the actual muscles, and then chewing. Um, one thing that's also I wanted to mention is that I thought I had TMJ for years in my right jaw, and I found out that it wasn't actually my joint at all. I went to, I had to go to three jaw specialists over the course of, I don't know, 10 years or so, seven years, maybe. And it wasn't until I got to the third doctor that he told me it, it is not a joint or cartilage issue. It is a muscle issue. And that was in, I think, 2021, he told me that. And so I was like, okay. And then he gave me mouth inserts for nighttime. He said to actually wear it anytime I'm not eating or drinking, but basically he did top and bottom, the upper mouth and lower mouth, because he said that one is not enough. It has to smooth, it has to rub like on a smooth surface. And so a lot of people, a lot of oral surgeons will only give out a top or a bottom hmm. um, insert, but you really need both so that it can glide over a smooth surface if you have the muscle issue. Yeah. And th these are great tips for anyone else out there who's living with this disease or suspecting this disease, things to try, things to look into, um, and things that have worked for you. So that's, that's really helpful. One of the things I also wanted to mention, uh, the, there's a medical history that is important to consider. And that is, there's the episodes of muscle stiffness, which is also known as myotonia. And then the cramps, they can begin in early childhood, as I mentioned. And then alleviation of the stiffness can be from brief exercise known as a warm-up effect and that's really important because that reminds me that when i was playing in when i was playing tennis in college i was such a good practice athlete they call them you know practice athlete where you're like you're really on your game before the actual game but then when the game comes you kind of freeze up hmm. And I always thought it was anxiety, but it wasn't anxiety. It was that I was tired by the time that the match came around. <laughs> Muscles were giving up. And so I always wondered why I wasn't winning that many matches because I would put my energy into practicing and warming up before a tennis match. And then I would end up being tired by the time the match came around. And so that's, that was another sign of this that now looking back it seems really obvious but it wasn't at the time yeah over the course of a few years in 2016 2020 and 2022 as part of my blood test i got something called i think i'm pronouncing this right 
creatine kinase kinase yeah creatine kinase that is just a blood test that i've gotten a few times and the normal range in, in the lab that i was going to said there are units of measure from 30 to 220. in 2020 and 2022 my test showed the range of their measure of units in the 60s but in 2016 my measurement was in the 40s and so i looked back at my notes because i've been keeping track of my blood for a while now out of just necessity and i realized that around that time where i take that test and i was in the 40s i was a little bit more physically active and i was eating healthier and i also this is around the time where i started developing symptoms for celiac disease which i was also recently diagnosed with really wow and so I was also eating a lot less wheat around that time where I was scoring the, in the 40s of the, the creatine blood test. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because if you look this up, if you look up myotonia congenita on the internet, you'll see that one of the markers, aside from genetic testing, is that a serum of the creatine is three to four times the upper limits of normal. And for me, that wasn't true. As I said, my numbers were well within the range of normal, actually in the low end of normal. And so you can still have myotonia congenita and be able to take this blood test and not see a connection. Wow. Interesting. That's why I'm bringing it up is because the internet is not going to tell you everything that you really need to know. And it might mis mislead you or think that it's not going to work. I do have one more question for you. You've been through a lot. You have a bunch of diagnoses, this, you know, this major pain that we've talked about with the myotonia congenita. Um, you've learned a lot about your body and how it works over the years. And it seems like maybe things are settling into a better place. You know, this diagnosis is so new. I didn't even realize it was just a few months ago that you just got this diagnosis. But um, I hope that having that diagnosis is bringing you some relief um, from anxiety about what's happening with your body. And definitely some validation that what you've been struggling with all these years is real and that there is a name for it and there are things you can do to learn how to manage it. Um, so, you have all these answers now, but you went through most of your journey without that. And I'm sure that that was really hard to make it through. So, if you could go back in time and address yourself way back at the beginning of this journey and give yourself a piece of advice that you think might help you to make it through what would that be it's going to be advice that i give myself every day related to a lot of different things which is listen to your gut you know yourself you know your body you know your mind and no one can take that away from you yeah awesome that's good advice and it's so much easier to do that when you have a diagnosis <laughs> I know this, you know, from experience that before doctors were willing to recognize that what I was experiencing was real, it was really hard to tell myself that it was, you know, at first it was easy. At first it was like, okay, these doctors are wrong. This is real. And I just need to be patient until we figure it out. But, you know, cut to five years, 10 years later, when I just start asking myself, is this something that I'm doing with my thought patterns that is causing this pain and this, you know, this neurological dysfunction? Am I doing this to myself? Um, getting to the point where you lose touch with your own sense of reality because you've been gaslit so many times is so difficult. And, you know, reconnecting with your ability to trust your gut can be really difficult when you finally find an answer. That's something that I'm kind of trying to work through right now, even though my, my answer is still, you know, provisional. <laughs> And I'm really hoping that it sticks, but yeah, but trusting your gut when you have a chronic illness, when you have a disability, when doctors are not listening to you, believing yourself and knowing what your body is telling you is real, is really difficult. And it's a really important thing to stay in touch with. And I think another really important aspect of trying to find answers is to a concept called grit and I think that's the difference between being in bed for the rest of your life, distressed, and not being able to live the life that you want, and actually being able to find answers. Because if I had given up 10 years ago, I would be a very different person than I am today. 
And I think not being a not being afraid of pissing off the doctors, not caring about what they're going to think of you personally. Because if you're trying to be friends with them, it's not going to work. You're going to offend them because you're basically telling them that they're not doing their job. And if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. I would rather have a doctor be pissed off at me and not like me as a person than to to not have the answers I have. Because if I had let these doctors walk all over me like like they wanted to, I wouldn't be where I am now. Right? You know, So having that grit where you're optimistic, you're confident, you're creative, which is in this context would mean you're asking a lot of questions to a lot of different people. You're researching as much as you can. You're networking. Um, and that's going to lead to the resilience or the grit. Mm-hmm. With, and that's something that I feel like I've always had. That's part of my personality. And I'm so grateful for that because without that, like I said, I'd be in a very, very different, darker place than I am now. Yeah. Well, Amelia, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. So much interesting information in there. Um, Not just hearing about your journey, but learning about this disease and so many great tips and things for people to keep in mind who are going through something similar. Remind us, tell us again about where to find your short film and then anything at all that you'd like to plug, social media, anything like that, definitely let us know. Right now I have my TikTok and Instagram, which are Hello Amelia Green. And you can watch my film Coming Clean on YouTube if you search on YouTube Coming Clean Easter Seals. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing your story with us today, sharing your time with us. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine, from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at Patreon.com dot com slash major pain podcast.